Greetings everyone, welcome to Libertarian Europe. I'm Lucas Nunes. Today we have a special guest here, is Horia Christian. Horia is a, a writer and he has been writing a bit for our website libertarianeurope.com and Horia, uh, he's a neuroscientist, he's an open source software developer uh, working on neuroimaging and psychopharmacology and uh, he has experiences uh, in Switzerland, in Russia, in the US, and in Germany. Uh, if I um, missed something, Horia, you can tell me, and welcome. Yeah, so thanks for having me. Uh, the, what you described was, uh, was pretty much uh, correct. Uh, I, I don't know, did you mention, I think, uh, maybe you skipped England anyway. So I studied at a lot of universities and worked at some as well. So I think I'm pretty qualified to comment on the academic environment uh, globally. Well, not globally, but certainly in the Western world and, uh, and Russia. I'm not yet familiar with East Asia, though. That, I'm sure that would be very interesting as well. Yes, yeah, so the theme of our subject, the, or, or the theme of our podcast today uh, will be uh, the woke ideology in the university and a comparison between the US and European countries. So, uh, in terms of woke ideology in the academic universe, how does Europe compare to the US right now in your experience? Um, well, I mean, that's a pretty somewhat longer question. I, I, I'm not sure how it compares right now, because of course I've been in different places, so I've captured different environments at different time points. But assuming that there's any continuity in the things which I've seen, uh, I would say that Europe is a lot better off. And by a lot better off, I obviously mean that the entire woke nonsense, or you, some people call it socialist or neo-Marxist or cultural Marxist. I mean, I think the terminology is important to define, but you might have heard many of these terms. All of these phenomena, I think, are a lot more unhinged and aggressive in the United States than in Europe. Like, no question about that. How does a student in some American university compares to... Uh, some students in Europe uh, in terms of the woke leftism. That's that's actually quite interesting because where the students are concerned, I think they, and by they I mean the sample which I've seen, which may or may not be representative. I've mentored a number of students in, in multiple of these places. Um, I think the students are mostly okay and they're mostly unaffected, but they get affected by it incrementally. So I think the, the bigger question is the cultural environment which the university creates and communicates and in some senses imposes on the students than the quality of the students themselves. Another thing which might not be related to political ideology and the way in which it's communicated and dressed up, but, but rather just the, um, the scientific quality of the students, which I think is, uh, is the most important thing which we should be looking at in the university, is uh, like the difference which I've seen in that regard, though it could be also due to the different reputations of the universities I've been at, is that while the Anglosphere has this incredibly toxic uh, ideological environment, by virtue of their good reputation, and I'm not trying to bash any of the German universities I was at, just to give you an overview. So in Germany, I was uh, mainly in Heidelberg. 
in uh, in Switzerland. I was at the ETH in England. I was at Oxford in Russia. I was at the St. Petersburg um, State University. And in the United States right now, I'm at the MIT. These, uh, these are the universities which I've been at. And um, while all of them are considered good and reputable, of course, the reputation of the Anglosphere universities exceeds their local environment. So at Oxford and at the MIT, though, these were the universities which had the most um, acerbic environment where ideology is concerned. Actually, they attracted a lot of highly competent students. So I've met more, quote unquote, genius students there than I did in the other places. Um, so I think that's the main difference which I've seen in the students. The ideological um, temperature of the students, I would say, is pretty much the same all over, maybe with the exception of Russia, where everybody is uh, politically very skeptical in general. So I think Russia is doing really well where the political um, orientation of the students is concerned, i.e. you have a lot of diversity and nobody is aggressive about their opinions. And all of the others are doing a tiny bit worse, but uh, in in not a single one of them would I say that the students are the problem. Uh, Macron has stated that the woke leftism culture was uh, racialized in France. How much do you think that the woke leftist culture from the US is affecting Europe? Hmm. I actually think it spreads from the US or most generally from uh, from the Anglosphere. So the, the first time I've ever seen woke culture live, I mean, you know, we all know it from the internet and we see the memes and we laugh. And all of us, particularly the ones among us who are not necessarily very political partisan, but just highly politically critical, which is why we, we notice the problems with this ideology, uh, will probably think that you know, on the internet, it's exaggerated. It's uh, it's true, but it's always a bit of a straw man, right? Uh, that's what I thought, at least. And then I had I had my first contacts with wokeism in the United Kingdom, and uh, it was uh, it, it already shaped up to be worse than what you think if you've only seen it on the internet. So it's actually uh, uh, for some reason all of the frogs and the troll posters they're um, they're apparently. Um, uh, depicting the catastrophe in a milder fashion than it actually is. But in any case, I've originally seen it in the UK. And I've seen it at an even greater extent and even worse here in the US. So I think it is clearly an Anglosphere problem which is being exported. And I think it's uh, yeah, it's mainly being exported at the elite level or at the leadership level of the universities. I actually have a really interesting anecdote. So at one of these universities in Europe, I won't disclose which one, I was at a party uh, and I met a professor, um, a pretty young professor. She, she just moved there. And, you know, it was a party atmosphere. We chatted and I asked her why she came to this place in particular. And uh, she told me that, uh, well, you know, people here are quite, uh, are quite backward and, you know, they're not that good on, uh, on diversity, equity and inclusion. And, you know, I'm, I'm here to help address that problem. So I'm not trying to insinuate that there's any conspiracy or something like that. But it's clearly something that's, um, that's happening where people uh, want to change the culture. And the people who change the culture primarily come from the Anglo-American region. Like this particular researcher was also from the Anglosphere. Uh, and she moved to, to a continental European university. 
So I think it's absolutely clear that these are the people exporting it and um, it might be their main cultural export nowadays. I, I don't think it might. It clearly is. How do you think that the wokeness is affecting the performance of the students? Uh, actually, <clears throat> you know, you might think that I'd, uh, I'd try to shit on this as much as possible, but um, I actually think it's not affecting the performance of the students in particular that badly because um, a lot of students either opt to stay under the radar or, or to just deflect it. I've met a student here at the MIT. It was a very interesting story. Uh, he's actually quite uh, a lefty, so a member of an uh, of uh, an anarcho syndicalist or whatever community. Uh, but he doesn't like the wokeness at all, and uh, he told me that you know everybody who whom he knows and he hangs out with thinks that um, that these uh, diversity trainings and quotas and whatever. And I'm not quite entirely sure that they have quotas specifically but they do have like affirmative action hires you've read about that also at columbia like it's a well-known phenomenon um and he said well i know that's ridiculous that's laughable that's pathetic um and i just ignore it and i concentrate on my work so i think uh, a lot of the students are able to deflect this correctly uh however it becomes very problematic once you advance in the in the hierarchy so as soon as um political games start being played this is, of course, uh, a major factor which, uh, which can help and facilitate harassment and conflicts and um, yeah, mobbing of co-workers and getting one leg up on them and getting ahead. Uh, and it, of course, always comes at the cost of, um, of academic excellence. So I think uh, it mainly affects the mid-level employees, so researchers, postdocs, maybe PhD students, and most definitely the faculty. Like that's where it manifests. But I think, which is why I'm very hopeful that this thing might end not necessarily soon, but at some point, I think, you know, children and they're not children anymore, young adults, they're quite smart at these things and they can smell bullshit. And I think a lot of students here actually smell it, but they just conform with it, you know, much like uh, students in socialist countries would have conform conformed to the socialism because uh, they know you need to you need to play the game to stay in the game. Yes, uh, I don't think I had mentioned that uh, at the beginning of the podcast, uh, but you're originally from Romania. Uh, do you have an idea of how this woke culture is also affecting Romania? Yeah, so I follow a lot of um, friends from Romania and what they tell me and what they post on social media. And I think uh, the woke culture isn't permeating Romania that much. Uh, particularly not Romanian academia. So it uh, it certainly looks like this uh, this woke ideology, although it claims to be very, you know, help people who are disadvantaged, this uh, it's sort of a reiteration of the old socialist mantra for the people. Uh, but uh, it's not like that in practice. In practice, it's a very elitist uh, movement. Uh, and of course, it's about changing the culture and changing it from the top down, not the other way around, much like, you know, socialism was originally as well, but uh, not how it claimed it would be. Uh, but what they're actually doing is uh, I think they're mainly interested in propagandizing on these beliefs at quote unquote elite institutions. 
Uh, Romania, as it, uh, as it sadly happens, does not have any academic institutions which are considered part of the world elite. Like there are good unis in Romania. The medical university in Bucharest, Karol Davila, attracts a lot of people from abroad. But it's not something which is considered, you know, on the level of, uh, of Heidelberg in Germany or ETH in Zurich or, or MIT here. So it's not, um, it's, I would say it's not a prominent uh, target for that, sort of, for that sort of thing. I guess it's a bit like, uh, you know, the, um, the, some, the, there was a story about Spartans being asked um, how, they, uh, how they stop others from conquering them. And, you know, their answer was, uh, well, by staying poor. There's nothing to steal here. And I think uh, culturally that's uh, a bit what happens uh, in Romania. So it's not a prominent target for infiltration in academia. In society at large, though, I mean, this is not the topic of this particular discussion, but you brought it up. In society at large, I think there are movements to start to promote woke ideology in Romania. Uh, there's been um, a protest for, I think some LGBTQ thing in Bucharest, uh, but it was absolutely laughable. Like it was in the center of the city and nobody showed up. Uh, so people aren't buying it, but there are funds, you know, from different NGOs to promote uh, what they like to call equality, which is of course not that. So attempts are being made and there's new political parties. Oh, you, I, I know, are you following the Romanian sphere? Are you familiar with USRE plus those polit political parties? No, I'm not so aware of what's going on in ah, Okay, that. so a, a lot of new political parties popped up with a very, um, let's, let's ape uh, the Anglosphere attitude about them. And they brand themselves as liberal, which, you know, is a term that in Europe predominantly still means what it's supposed to mean. Uh, but uh, they call themselves liberal, but, you know, they're acting very, um, very cronyist, a lot more like the, the American Democrats than the American libertarians, if you will. Uh, and they're constantly getting a lot of media attention from abroad and money, which, you know, I think is interesting and curious. But so infiltration, well, infiltration, you know, it keeps sounding like a conspiracy. I don't think anybody's planning it. It's just idiotic people doing idiotic things. But um, I, I think these attempts are happening. But uh, they're not very advanced and they certainly don't affect Romanian academia. And what is the role being played by the majority of the lecturers regarding the propagation of the woke leftist culture in Europe and also in the US? Oh, that's, uh, that's a bit of a complex question. Could you, could you actually repeat that or maybe break it into two parts? Yeah, I want to know what is the role being played by the majority of the lecturers uh, regarding this propagation <coughs> of the woke leftist culture? First, you can talk about uh, Europe and then you can talk about the US and how they compare. Okay, that's interesting. So, um, hmm. I would say that the lecturers... Okay, let's start with Europe. So I would say that the lecturers are generally very apolitical in Europe. And they, at least those with whom I've had the good fortune to interact, you know, it could be, it could be possible that I've just run into good people in Europe and not so good people here, but I don't think so. Uh, so uh, most lecturers are entirely apolitical and they stay the fuck away from it. Like, None of the professors with whom I've worked with in Europe had any sort, voiced any sort of political opinions. I know there was a group with which I ha I hung out 
and um, we uh, were always like eating together at uh, at lunch, and um, you know we talked about politics. You know the the occasional uh, outrage of the week pops up pops up in conversation, and everybody voiced their political opinions except our senior professor. And I asked him why not, and he said that he thinks it would be irresponsible for someone in uh, in his position to uh, to voice uh, a political opinion because his authority derives from scientific competence, not from political competence and he wouldn't want to to bias us by that and i think that's that's uh, not just a testament to to how great his character is but it's something which i see a lot or i saw a lot of in europe uh, some people might be doing it out of a truly you know profound uh, thinking about their role as a researcher and some people might be doing it out of fear because they don't want to start any scandal or any unpleasant discussions right so this is the the European situation, and I think that's why the madness might spread less easily in Europe, because people just understand that this is not supposed to be the prerogative of the university, like political agitation. In the United States, I can give you another example of, uh, of a professor here who, in group meetings, uh, was actually quite uh, quite vocal about the fact that uh, we should go vote for... Um, for the presidential election in the United States, and we should make sure that we vote for the right person. Now, he, he never said the name of the person, but it was very obvious from the discussion who he meant exactly, uh, to the point that during the Democratic primaries, he was like, well, you know, we should vote for the right person, whoever the right person might end up being. Uh, and I mean, I, I felt that was simply shocking. I was like, okay, so what do I do now? Do I notify the, the university bureaucracy? Do I notify the authorities? Because this is like shameless political propaganda in, uh, in, a, in an institution which is getting heaps of public funding, which are allegedly not for propaganda. But, you know, this is what we get. So I think here a lot of faculty members are... Um, are promoting the insanity themselves. So I think in Europe you have more of a situation where people might be a bit inactive in stopping it, but at least not actively promoting it. Whereas in the United States, all lecturers which uh, which I've met are actually pro- not promoting this nonsense. And you know, you could say it's uh, they're also doing it out of fear. You know, I previously talked about how a number of European lecturers might uh, might not get engaged in this, not because they understand their academic responsibility properly, but because they just don't want to start unpleasant conversations. It could be that people here understood if I don't virtue signal. Uh, people will start wondering, you know, am I maybe a quote-unquote N-word? Uh, N-word being the word which can actually get your career destroyed and fired here. It stands for a certain variation of socialism. Um, so uh, they might be doing it out of fear, you know, but uh, they're doing it in any case. Uh, like they're proactively participating in this madness spreading. Uh, and I think they... It's not mainly the lecture spreading it. I actually think a lot of this um, this ideology emanates from the bureaucracy and, you know, HR departments or whatever the equivalent might be. But the lecturers certainly have a hand in it, uh, perhaps because they're trying to protect their own asses. But yeah. What about in the UK? Because you mentioned earlier that the Anglosphere had kind of this toxic environment uh, kind as a whole and how, how was your experience in the UK? Yeah so my experience in the UK actually my professor in the UK uh, he was 
exemplary and he behaved more like in the previous description i uh, i counted the continental europeans I had this thing, so I was doing, I was working in uh, psychology when I was working with him. So, you know, you described what I was working on just to restate. Primarily, I do neuroscience and psychopharmacology, uh, but I did a brief excursion into actual psychology when I was in Oxford. So I was working at the Department of Experimental Psychology. And the professor with whom I was working, he was actually... um, very um, understated about these things and kept a civil distance as I think uh, one should in his position. And uh, what I noticed is I was doing a questionnaire about um, sexual behavior, right? And I was thinking because this was the time when the entire gender, you know, a million genders, a thousand and one nights, you know, a thousand and one genders uh, popped up. I was like, okay, well, why shouldn't I add a drop-down box for, uh, for whatever the gender the person might identify as, or, you know, have them put in, uh, put in uh, like a, a free field, you know, not necessarily because I, I support this, uh, this infinite multiplication of genders, but because I think whether or not somebody indicates a gender other than male and female might actually give important information as pertaining to the target of the interview, which was sexual behavior, right? And um, he... Uh, He didn't say no, he didn't say yes, and he was like, well, you know, Christian, I think it is important that one reviews the literature and sees how well these things are scientifically supported before one includes this in in a questionnaire which is supposed to be serious, which, you know, I think was a very diplomatic and honest and, you know, scientifically solid way to put it. Um, I ended up still putting the form because I was curious to see what people answered, but I added another form, which was, what was your gender assigned at birth? Uh, So that was the lecturer whom I met there. But a lot of the mid-level people in uh, who I met in Oxford were also quite, uh, quite adamant about this. I remember hanging out with one of them in a bar and um, I don't remember exactly what we were talking about, about, you know, like the role of science in, in the progress of humanity and it took a very abrupt uh, veer to the political, which was not exactly what, what I was thinking about. And they were like, yeah, you know, Christian, I think it's important that as a scientist, you, you always think of the social repercussions of the things which you discover first. And I was like, really? Uh, aren't we supposed to like find the truth and, you know, society will eventually figure out how to deal with the truth? Like, isn't that how we do things? And they're like, oh, no, Christian, that's like horrible. Like, think of all of the all of the psychological things which could be used to, to facilitate sexism and racism. So they clearly saw research as subordinate to a certain political motivation, which I've never had this discussion with, with anybody here because people here are so acerbic and aggressive that I don't think one could have any sort of discussion with them which touches on the political without them uh, losing their minds, literally. Um, but I think this is much the same tune which I would get here, that uh, you should understand science as, um, as deeply um, connected to, they call it euphemistically social responsibility, but what, of course, that means in their interpretation of the word is you should see science as subordinate to whatever politics you're trying to push. It's very interesting you mentioned that. Today I just posted a meme, a cartoon where it was a, a statue being of the thinker being substituted by the feeler. And then it says, and pursuit of the legit- legitimization of moral impulses into knowledge. 
Could you repeat the same thing? The legitimization of moral impulses into knowledge. I got that part. But what did they say before that? It was, it's a cartoon where the, they are removing the statue of the thinker and substituting it uh, with a statue of the feeler, mm-hmm. a guy who, who has both hands on his heart and he's profoundly touched by his emotions. What you just said made me think of that because it looks like that uh, some people in those positions of power, uh, be it uh, academic, uh, in in the academic universe, or power uh, regarding social medias, they they're going towards this idea where feelings matter much more than the truth. And when you are a scientist, you should be uh, looking for the truth, no? I, I mean, I, I fully uh, understand your criticism, and it is, in fact, uh, as you say, a very good metaphor of, um, of the direction which this ideology is taking, namely a reversion to these atavistic modes of looking at the world. You know, they call it progressivism, but this is actually, you know, caveman social planning it's uh, it's radical regressivism it's a return to pre-civilization modes of, of organizing people but um, that's not actually the way they're putting it at least in academic context so they're not quite uh, throwing reason out in a barefaced manner I, I think it's going in that direction and you know it might eventually happen so you know there's these memes online about uh, you, you know there was a presentation with the feminist glaciology or something like that so you know it, it might be going in this direction eventually but um uh, nobody will support that. Like even here, the the wokest of the wokes will uh, will still uh, coach their political language in um, in the veneer in the image of uh, of rationality and the way in which it's actually presented is um, as an exaltation of rationality. So, uh, how should I best describe it? Uh, you like basically the the main take of this um, of this uh, ideology, which is why I think that the terminology is um, is a bit problematic because we need to get it correct. Like you know, wokeism might not be that descriptive, and leftism might actually be an incorrect description. But I think the main tenant which they have is uh, one that the free market and individual freedom and organization are harmful. Uh, because uh, that th- that would enable people to to have biases and you know do incorrect things and of course we can't have that so what what we'll have instead is an utter destruction of individual freedom so the general take is that uh, individual freedom and therefore the free market capitalism uh, self responsibility uh, individualism are irrational because that's when people get to make mistakes. So what we need to do is we need to collectivize rationality, find out the optimal solution for society, and then impose that on people. So again, to to the point which I'm making so that I'm not veering off into obscure philosophical details, uh, the way in which this is presented is uh, the utmost rationality because we are looking at everything in a rational way. We are dissecting unconscious biases. 
The individual mind is irrational because it has unconscious biases. This collective uh, mind, these collective decisions are always rational because they're based on discussion and argumentation and scientific insight. This is, of course, the story. It's not at all like this, right? These collective discussions are based on political agitation, partisanship, mobbing, pressure, like on the worst human behaviors. But uh, the way in which it's presented is we are the avatars of knowledge as Fauci, you know, Dr. Anthony Fauci, the new poster boy of the of the scientist movement. Well, scientist in the sense of scientism, um, criticism of me is criticism of science. Or he said some uh, an attack on me is an attack on science, which uh, I think uh, uncovers how this movement, which allegedly exalts rationality, is nothing more than a cult, right? Because what actually happens when you try to collectivize rationality is you have no rationality because, you know, humans can reason, groups of people can't reason. So I I do think that the underlying thing is truly a return to, to feeling and impulse and emotion, but particularly in academia, it is presented as the exact opposite. Sorry if I if I went way off the rails on this, but yeah, feel free to ask more about this if you want me to clarify. You can move on to the next thing. No, that was very interesting. Uh, I think that uh, it's very important to hear uh, real scientists talking about science in a very honest way. About because it feels like that we are, we are losing the contact with what science really is. I, I think we are indeed. And the fact that um, this, uh, this evisceration of, uh, of human reason, and you know, that's the new favorite phrase of the Mises Institute, which if you're listening to a Liberty podcast, you should be aware of, you know, their new motto is take human action. Uh, and of course, I think that reason and human action and individualism are intertwined, right? So groups of people cannot reason, therefore, groups of people cannot do science, you can, of course, have individual people who help you out with stuff but you know reason only happens at the individual level and i think this um this is something which is being thrown out the window in in the service of managerialism like having this uh, seniorial class which uh, which presides over society and plans everything uh, in the name of science which is our new god apparently but uh, in while doing so you actually destroy what real science is which is an individual person looking at the world critically and saying, you know what, I think this is bullshit. I think I can understand what's actually happening. And by understanding this, I will actually empower myself and, of course, others to control the natural world. So I think that's the crux of science. And that is happening less and less. You can also see this. And I mean, I know if your listeners are into academia themselves or want to get into it, it's very interesting in spite of all the problems which we have. Uh, but you can see a movement away from like, quote unquote, practical science. And I don't just mean practical science in the sense of applied science, like basic research can also be practical. Uh, but, you know, the paradigm used to be, OK, how can we influence this? How can we modify this? Uh, and science has taken a dramatic philosophical bend towards the observational. Uh, we no longer try to try to put our hypothesis that much to test uh, against the real world, but we try to come up with these metaphorical and uh, convoluted descriptions of what might actually happen. So I think this is eroding the scientific ethos in addition to turning science into a tool for unpleasant political movements. That's very interesting. And in the 
interview with Jordan Peterson, the North Korean dissident Yeonmi Park mentioned that uh, her experience in the university felt like a waste of time and a waste of money due to the fact that the woke leftism that she was facing in Columbia University was really, really strong. She had mentioned that she didn't learn anything, uh, I think, in the areas of humanities that was worthy, that it was a total waste. And do you have this uh, same idea by being in the MIT there, uh, especially in these areas of humanities? Uh, well, I mean, I've uh, I haven't been here in the areas of humanities. I think, or at least I would hope, that the MIT doesn't do a lot in the areas of humanities. But you know, since science has become a tool for political propaganda, who knows? They're probably having excursions into that. Um, yeah. So what I think about that is actually that the what she said is a bit. like clearly exaggerated because, you know, the comparison was to North Korea. The comparison was, you know, this is worse than North Korea, which I think is is clearly an exaggeration and it's an unhelpful exaggeration. It's not an unhelpful exaggeration because, you know, we're being too mean to these people because, quite frankly, these people need to be moved to the private sector. Like, these people have uh, have nothing... Uh, nothing to do on the public payroll, okay? So I, I don't think we need to uh, to put on any, you know, kid gloves when dealing with them. I do think that these people need to be chased out of academia, literally, because they're destroying it and harming people. That's not the point. Uh, but the point is it's unhelpful for us because it doesn't help us identify the actual issue. Um, because obviously it's not worse than in North Korea. I mean, I've been here and I've gotten in plenty of trouble for not, not drinking the Kool-Aid, but, you know, nobody's threatened to send me to a camp. Nobody's attacked me. Nobody's shot me. Nobody's tortured me, at least not physically. Um, so clearly it's not as bad as North Korea, right? But um, it is more insidious than North Korea in the sense that the propaganda is a, a lot more efficient. Like in these classical totalitarian states, although most people obey, most people realize that it's bullshit. Uh, but here it's being coached in this very refined language of, uh, you know, we're actually the avatars of reason. Uh, we're actually here to help LGBTQ people. How, how can you possibly not uh, not want that? And a lot of people actually buy into it and they believe in it as uh, a real and proper religion. And they support it with religious fervor and therefore with all of the insane behavior, that sort of thing, when it is not... Um, managed by a religion which has made these mistakes before and has learned from it, such as the Christian religion, uh, with all of these behaviors in which it degenerates. So I think her statement wasn't good that it was worse than in North Korea. It, it wasn't worse, but it was better and better in the sense of more efficient and more insidious and better at indoctrinating people. Having said that, I don't know exactly what the experiences she had at Columbia are. But I highly doubt that she was actually exposed to to credible threats of, you know, torture and murder. I mean, you know, there's the Antifa militias beating up people occasionally. So, yes, violence does happen. But, you know, a couple of, uh, of Antifa soy boys and the North Korean army are not, not the same thing, I would assume. 
Uh, I don't know about her experiences at Columbia, but I would bring up there was a Romanian professor also at Columbia, and he gave an interview on uh, on a Romanian TV station, and you can watch it with subtitles. I don't recall the name off the top of my head, but if anybody is curious, look for a Romanian professor leaving Columbia University, and there's going to be an interview in Romanian and Romanian with English subtitles. And uh, he said the same thing, you know, I couldn't take it anymore. I had this extremely uh, privileged, as this uh, this newly very popular wor- word uh, is, I had this extremely privileged position at uh, Columbia University, but I was like, you know, I can't fucking take this anymore. I'm literally going back to Romania, is what he said. Uh, so, yeah, the atmosphere is incredibly oppressive, um, but it's uh, it's masked in uh, nonviolence and kindness and weakness, and um, I, I guess it's par for the course, right? Because the, the core tenant of these movements is more or less the, the cult of victimhood and the cult of weakness. So I think uh, they wouldn't have any interest in appearing strong, even if they are strong. So what, what they would probably try to do and what they're trying to do is be incredibly oppressive, but only in ways which look uh, incredibly kind and nonviolent and uh, understated. Um, I think that's a core tenet of the ideology. And I think it's important to realize that, right? Because, um, I, I mean, I know there's there's like a longer philosophical point here, but um, as um, like there's different ways in which you can show power. You can show it nakedly uh, or you can show it covertly and constantly insist that you're actually the underdog. You don't have any power. But then you have like mandatory indoctrination courses, the same thing happened with the vaccines, you know, so it's like nobody's going to kidnap you and inject you by force. But they're like, well, you know, you don't have the vaccine, so I, I'm afraid you can't work here and you can't shop here and you can't ride the train. So, you know, I guess you'll have to live in that cardboard box over there. Aren't we kind? We're not hurting anybody. It's more more this sort of thing. And this, uh, well, if you if you are here and if you witness these people act, you will see this all the time incredible cruelty, incredible abuse of power, but always masked in this veneer of kindness. So this morning I read an article uh, in which uh, Rothbard was talking about uh, this religion idea. It's kind of, kind of a cult that, that the leftist uh, groups have that uh, you have to be helping uh, their cause just like you mentioned how come you you're not helping the, the these minority here and Rothbard said that back in 1992 when he wrote this article I, I mean it's uh, it's pretty obvious to anybody who's paying any sort of attention that this is a profoundly religious phenomenon driven driven by belief and by as, as again as I said atavistic impulses which are making a comeback uh, but uh, I mean great about Rothbard, but you don't even wait, have to wait for Rothbard to tell you that in the 1990s, like you'll, you'll find things by Thomas Sowell talking about that in the 80s or perhaps even before that. So people have seen this coming for a very, very long time. And I mean, you know, if you go back to Nietzsche, you know, you can see Nietzsche uh, seeing that this sort of thing is what would happen before socialism even took off. Like he saw the atmosphere and he was like, guys, this is like a, um, a distilled uh, version of all of the worst traditions which we have in Christianity, liberated from whatever kind of limits uh, the notion of God put on it and turned into this ideology, which will be incredibly oppressive. And this, this is what's happening. 
And um, yeah, it clearly has religious undertones. And you can even see that with, uh, I don't know in how far European listeners have been following the uh, the uh, American outrage of the week uh, or outrage of the year last last summer with, uh, with that black guy having been killed by the cop uh, and the BLM protests and, uh, and everything. Uh, I, I think you should pay attention to these things because if you don't play your cards right, the insanity is coming to you, you know? Um, but uh, like even the manifestations were so weirdly religious, like you had people kneeling, you know, as you would in prayer, uh, you can find videos on YouTube. And of course, these videos are not necessarily representative. So it's not like if you go on the streets of Boston, people are randomly kneeling in front of black people. Uh, but, uh, you know, in some places in the United States, they held gatherings where you had like some black people on the stage and people were kneeling like in front of them. There was even another video, which was, I mean, it was, I'm pretty used to cringe, but some things are too cringe to watch. There were like people kissing a, a black guy's boot. Uh, I was like... The manifestations are bare, are religious in in a profoundly barefaced nature, and um, they do permeate academia sadly as well. So in the middle of this entire Black Lives Matter thing, um, I think the website is still up. You can see it. Uh, so uh, the uh, the MIT, the also other institutions, but you know the MIT is the only one from whom which I I receive updates. Uh, they had like a vigil, uh, which, you know, is a profoundly religious word. Um, it's, uh, I, I think, um, I mean, I'm, yeah, I don't know how to explain it. People speak very different languages, but you, you can look it up what it means in your language and tell me whether or not that, that has a clear religious undertone, uh, where like professors from the MIT, the, you know, they stood there and they talked about the profound impact of race relationships on them in America. Uh, there was this like uh, slightly dark-skinned professor talking on camera, or maybe he was a junior lecturer. I don't know exactly what his title was, uh, talking on camera about how um, how his little little girl is afraid that he might not come back tomorrow because he is a black man in America. And that's like, are you serious? A, you're not even that black. B, you're a professor at the MIT. You're rich. You're living in a, in a, by American standards, incredibly safe city. Like, how on earth could you even say that with a straight face? But uh, these are the sort of things which propagate. And, of course, you have an, an, anal an analog to original sin. You have this, like, white guilt. And, of, of course, it's not just white, you know, about intersectionalism. You can slice and dice the population by whatever criteria you want which is politically expedient, but, uh, you know, you're, you have like this innate guilt or toxicity for being male or whatever, um, or, you know, maybe for being straight. I haven't heard of any straight guilt, but I'm sure that's, that's like part of the ideological environment. Uh, so you, you have all of these analogs to classical Christian religious phenomena, which are making a comeback in modified fashions, of course, without God, um, yeah, and I think it's really bad and it's really sad that people aren't seeing this, particularly people who should have critical thinking inculcated in them through the academic process. Like I've seen so many, like if I hear believe in science from one more person who has a doctorate in philosophy, like a PhD, of course, not a PhD in philosophy, but they're, they're like a doctor of philosophy. They're supposed to not just be able to do the experiments, but understand the implications and the scientific method. You know, then you have people like this saying, believe in science. And I'm like, 
Like these people clearly either don't understand anything because they haven't been educated or perhaps even worse, they do understand it, but uh, they willfully ignore it for uh, in order to satisfy their beliefs or whatever the political expediency of their environment is. So it's clearly a cult. Um, you have like your new class of priests. You know, we're all supposed to believe in, in Anthony Fauci. Sorry for giving this guy as an example, but he's become a bit of a poster child over here. Uh, who like speaks in the name of science? He is like the the pope of uh, of epidemiology, apparently. And you know his word is law. And if he changes his mind, well, you know the the synod met again, and now we have a new religious ruling. Uh, so the the observation is entirely correct, and it's true in so many ways, so many shocking ways, and it always brings about catastrophe in some form or another. Yes, I have the feeling that what we are living now is a mixture of Frankfurt School and Antonia Gramsci's uh, line of thought. And I'm not sure if you are aware of Gramsci's work. I mean, uh, yeah, there's a lot of ways in which you can see this as following from this philosophical stream or another. You could also say, well, you know, this descends from... Hegel's of Hegel's dialectics. Uh, you could also say that this actually descends from you know Rousseau and the social contract. Uh, I mean, I think that's a very interesting discussion. Though perhaps for that we should have a, a proper philosopher join us who has actually read all of these texts in full in in the original and perhaps more to give us um, a better insight. I mean, I know the story about the Frankfurt School. But I'm not at all convinced that this wouldn't have happened before the Frankfurt School, particularly because people saw it happening, uh, that this wouldn't have happened without the Frankfurt School, particularly because people saw it happening before the Frankfurt School even existed. So I, I do think this is a profound religious stream, and it actually descends from uh, from Christianity, which is, of course, a religion which, uh, which we're all grateful for the existence of because it helped build a lot of Western culture. But uh, some elements from it uh, have survived in a highly mutated and virulent and, you know, to use religious terminology, perhaps demonic fashion, and uh, are now uh, slowly taking over the intellectual world. I have another question for you. If you had a child that was going to the university in 2021, would you have your child to go to a university in Europe or in the US? Uh, probably in Europe, but not for the reasons which you might think. I'd probably have them go to a university in Europe and uh, here insert socialist sympathetic point because I wouldn't have to pay. Uh, so that's uh, <coughs> that's the my main consideration. Uh, I am confident that if I had a child, uh, the child would be uh, properly educated and apt enough to, to see through the bullshit. And if the child isn't, I mean, I do believe in, uh, in personal responsibility. And I do actually also think that diversity is great, true diversity, which doesn't mean, hey, we have this palette of, uh, of colors. Let's see if we have someone matching each of these colors in our institute. But real diversity, of course, means having people who, who think different things, right? So if my child would, for some reason, resolve that they would like to be a woke socialist, I mean, it's... It's their life, and I would think it's a mistake, and I'd probably advise them against it. But uh, 
like I don't have any children. So the best I can do is base this on my relationship with my mom, who I think did a very great job in that regard, namely saying, yes, at at some point you're your own person and I might have my vision of uh, what's right and, uh, and how I would ideally want my child to be. But, you know, you're your own person now. I think it is no longer the the prerogative of the parent to decide um, what uh, what their children should think uh, politically, right? So, as I said, um, if I was in the U.S. and for some reason the the like the kid got a scholarship, so I wouldn't have to to pay out of my through my nose to like finance uh, the university. Um, I would let them go to one of these woke universities. Uh, as I said, for undergrad, I think you can. Um, if you're skilled enough, uh, sufficiently deflect the madness. And of course, for further career development, I mean, this is the negative experience which I've had. So my career has taken a, a huge hit by the fa- through the fact that I couldn't properly work here because people were incredibly uh, toxic and aggressive based on you know political idiocy, which, by the way, I didn't even bring up. So if you want, you can ask me and I can give you like a brief summary of that. Uh, so I think for career advancement, this is not a place you want to be in because these uh, these vultures will pick the bo- the meat off your bones, right? Uh, but I think for undergrad, you could navigate your way through it. You know, you you don't start huge arguments, or if you start, you start them with people who you know are good people and who you can trust. And um, afterwards, you move on. And if you want to become a socialist, you know, go go ahead and do that. Um, it's it's your own choice, right? I mean, also to go back previously, I mentioned something which I think sounded maybe a bit too aggressive, namely that I said, you know, I think these people should be kicked out of academia, by which I don't mean that, you know, socialist point of views shouldn't be allowed. I think everything should be allowed, including the things which which we don't don't like, which in my case is this particular collectivism. What I think really needs to be eliminated fully is uh, this entire, um, yeah, this entire atmosphere and the people who propagate this atmosphere of political correctness, right? So, I mean, if you can be a socialist without being politically correct, that's great. But um, people who basically destroy the fabric of of intellectual life by mandating certain points of view and trying to smear uh, or to libel as everything else is somehow murderous, so, you know, you... You need to support transgender uh, a thousand and one genders, otherwise, otherwise you're Hitler or some nonsense like that. I mean, you know, that in itself is a libelous statement, right? So I think uh, such people have no business in serious society. But people who are socialists, sure, might even include my children, though I would hope not. <laughs> yes, I agree with you. The university is a place of ideas, of different ideas. So um, I agree that People have to study everything at the university if they if if they are allowed to. Like I mean, by that, uh, if if they have if it's within the area of their students, they of course they have to see all their the perspectives, the different perspectives. You can't just ban one thing. So otherwise, you will not have a full uh, picture, you know. Uh, and I think that. What they are trying to do this uh, through uh, the PC uh, mob is that uh, they're they're really trying to suppress everything that disagrees with them, you know. 
Yeah, I mean that's that's pretty obvious, you know. That's that's the very purpose of uh, of the movement. And if you if you challenge it on them, they will, of course, as I said, revert to this uh, in, incomprehensibly kind and flowery description of uh, of the intellectual atrocities which they're committing. Namely, it would be like, yeah, but you know, it's just about being considerate. And why why would you want to cause suffering by to someone by misgendering them? You know, so. Uh, we need this political correctness, right? Uh, that that would be the way in which they they tell it. But of course, what this actually means is your freedom and your perception of the wor- world, which is like key to you being able to reason. So you know, if you don't see someone as a certain gender, that's your perception of the world. That's your prerogative. <clears throat> All of um, so what it actually does is, of course, stifle any any sort of perspectives which are not theirs, which is part and parcel of uh, of a cult, of course. But I, I think that pretty much speaks for itself. But we can restate it for the audience. And uh, just because you mention it again, uh, what's the story the, that you're having there in, in the US, uh, in the university, the, uh, with these troubles you had? Ah, yeah. So <clears throat> I'm, not, I'm not sure how far I should, uh, I should go into details because the, the story is still ongoing. And I mean, you know, if, you're, if your audience is, uh, is curious, I'd certainly be happy to revisit it at a time when... Uh, when the story has ended, uh, but uh, what what basically happened is, uh, you know, I I support liberty. I, I never really thought of myself as a political person until I started getting attacked politically more and more. And I was like, "What the fuck's happening here, man? You know, just leave me alone." Uh, I mean, this uh, this already happened before. Not not that I was attacked in the sense of a proper conflict, but you know, people were getting uh, increasingly um, weird about certain things. And uh, when I moved here, I, of course, knew that um, in the United States, it's not like in other places, right? So it's not like in Switzerland where, you know, we can discuss at lunch uh, different uh, things. Also, how science relates to politics, like what we're, we're getting public funding, questions like, uh, is it is it good that we're getting public funding? Are we perhaps not overfunded? You know, difficult questions for scientists. And we, uh, we can have an honest debate about that and people will disagree, uh, but they, they will still be civil. So there will, there will not be any actual conflict. You know, you might get into conflict with, the, you know, the local bureaucracy or the politicians or whatever, but at the university, we're all friends. Uh, I already knew that that story would end in the United States because I was familiar with the sort of nonsense that happens here. So when I moved here, I very diligently put most of my social media content on private. I I made it a point, you know, for instance, when the professor mentioned that, you know, oh, you should vote and, you know, you should make sure you vote for the wrong person, for the right person, whoever that might shape up to be. I didn't say anything. Like I was noticing all of these things, taking them in and thinking, dear God, this is horrible. Uh, But, uh, you know, not challenging anybody or anything. And at some point, someone, I mean, I ended up finding out who, but it doesn't really matter for the purposes of this discussion. Some colleague or actually a small group of colleagues ended up going through uh, my social media. Somehow, I think they they smelled that, uh, that I wasn't uh, kosher enough, right? That I wasn't pious. Uh, and uh, they went through my social media and they dug up some uh, some absolutely bizarre nonsense from like years and years ago 
And they tailored that together into a story about how I am the N-word, basically. Uh, they actually even used it at some points, though. I think mostly they were aware that that's libelous and they tried to avoid it. But, you know, when, when you're that stupid, you can't help yourself. Um, so they did that. And then they vehiculated this, um, this uh, compendium of information uh, via emails behind my back to everybody in the group. Like, this is... The absolutely unbelievable levels of intrigue. You know, you'd think this is the, the royal court in Game of Thrones or something, you know? And uh, they vehiculated it via emails to everybody in the group, and uh, they tried to get everybody to sign a letter to the professor complaining about me. Uh, as it turns out, this was early on, so I hadn't met a lot of the people in person. I hadn't really built any particularly solid, like, social bonds, but there were some people who I was getting along quite well with. And they said the obvious thing, namely, you know, if you have issues with this guy, you know, maybe talk to him, you know, maybe ask him about these things before you start complaining to, to the leadership of the group or whatever. And apparently these people were put under tremendous pressure as well, because, you know, if they don't, uh, if, if they're trying to cover for me or something like that, maybe they are the N-word as well. You know, it's difficult to tell. And um, eventually everybody was coaxed or convinced into signing this complaint letter with which they went to the professor. And uh, they, they had like an entire lab presentation about me and about what a political heretic I am. Like, I mean, I, I don't know if this is unbelievable to you. It was to me, but I can't actually believe that at a serious university, you would have a, a separate group meeting session presentation about a colleague, right? which, of course, everybody was there and I, uh, I wasn't invited. Uh, and uh, the cowardice of these people, and as I said, the intrinsic weakness, because I think weakness is a key point in their ideology, and they have to try not only to appear weak, but to actually be personally weak and pathetic. Uh, even after that, even after the professor told me, and he was like, oh, you know, you should make, write an apology letter to them or whatever, not a single person came out to challenge me to say, listen, Christian, I'm the one who has issues with you. These are the issues. Explain yourself. Not a single person. It was always hidden in this, you know, oh, it's a collective complaint. The group, quote unquote, which, of course, was not what happened. So uh, they, they dragged my good name through the dirt. And uh, I, I wrote a letter explaining to them that I'm obviously not the N-word. Uh, I don't hate anybody. I just believe in my and everybody else's freedom. Of course, I also told them, listen, not only am I not harassing anybody based on, you know, gender or sexual orientation or whatever, I'm not even harassing you based on your social media profiles, which, by the way, to this day, I haven't had a look at. Somebody else had a look at one of my colleagues' Twitter profile and he was like, you know, Christian, this person is an unhinged lefty, but whatever, doesn't matter, right? So I was like, you know, I, I don't hate anybody, and I explained myself, though I think uh, it's pretty pathetic that I had to. And, uh, of course, after that, uh, they uh, they weren't satisfied. Like, I didn't bow down to the word of God. I didn't say self-flagellate enough, apparently, and they proceeded to, like, block me from resources in the lab. I, I spent a year here, and people didn't explain, like, basic devices to me. I was looking for a laser for, like, an entire month before somebody finally told me where it was. So really, really nasty stuff, uh, stuff which I think is unbecoming and unprofessional of uh, academic work. And quite frankly, anybody who would act like that uh, 
based on gender, based on sexual identity, based on uh, skin color, or in fact, based on anything else, you know, anybody who would actually uh, uh, marginalize somebody to that extent and attack them and try to coordinate a mobbing campaign has no place in an academic institution like that. That is pretty much clear, or perhaps no place working in any team. So this is what happened to me. It's a longer story. I won't go into the details. Uh, please don't dox anybody. You know that it's. I, I'm still dealing with it. That's an incredible, uh, incredible story. That. Uh, yeah, yeah, I know. It's, it's really, it's very immature, and it shows that uh, how much of a cult this thing is, because they. They, they, they're going, they're digging up things and making up things. And then without talking to you, they are just attacking you. And it's, it's just insane. They are making your life impossible on all ways. So it, it makes me to, to think like, what's, what's, what's coming next? You know, uh, they're going to, to advance to some level of violence in the future. Well, we don't know. As I said, that's actually one worry which I don't have. And I know it must seem bizarre because it looks like I'm somehow covering for these people. I'm not. I'm just trying to give you an honest opinion. Uh, I think the, the mandate of weakness is so strong in this ideology that they will not move to any direct uh, severe violence. So I, I don't think gulags are making a comeback. I think uh, it's just going to be ostracism, but uh, in a sense, you know, when you depend on Amazon for uh, for your delivery, when you depend on uh, food delivery for your food, when you depend on supermarkets for your food, when you depend on uh, these uh, these woke uh, quote unquote scientific elites for your employment and career advancement, uh, I think ostracism can be extremely painful. Uh, probably still better than ending up in a gulag, but uh, you know the question is by how much. So I I, do, I don't think it will ever escalate to a lot of violence. So if anybody is worried about that, but there's uh, plenty of bad things which can happen to you in between a civilized society and the gulag. It feels uh, actually, like... since you brought this up, yeah, sorry, uh, say say what you wanted to it say. It feels it feels like uh, that episode of the Social Credit and Black Mirror. I'm not sure you have watched it. I um sadly I don't well sadly I think luckily I don't uh, I don't listen to a lot of series and I think it's good advice it's a waste of time but I of course know about the the Chinese uh, social credit system which uh, quite frankly I think is um is better than this catastrophic uh, woke mobbing. And, you know, it's not just the universities. I talk to people here in the United States. Famous banks, which you have heard about, even if you're in Europe, have, you know, diversity training, political correctness internally. God help you if you support the wrong political party, you know. Uh, so, um, but I actually think that the social credit score is better in the sense that it's more explicit. So it's better in the sense that it's worse, you know, it doesn't fulfill the job as elegantly as this um, uh, this uh, woke coalition does, because you at least know that you're being oppressed, okay? Nobody is laboring under any illusions, whereas here, it's coached in this uh, conniving language of kindness, so if you don't think about it seriously, you might actually believe that there's no problem, you know, you might think, well... 
you know, some people are uh, are racist, which of course I'm not, and I don't think anybody who is accused, almost anybody who is accused of this, actually is. So if you if you don't uh, think about this critically or long enough, you might actually think that this is normal, right? And you might be um, uh, you might be led to believe that this is just a normal response uh, to people who are hateful, because this is the accusation. It's almost never true, but. The, the way the logic works is, okay, well, you know, you hate black people, which I don't. I don't think anybody who is often accused of this does. Uh, but the logic is, well, you know, this is probably what you do. Uh, and therefore, in return, we hate you. So, you know, if you would ostracize them, now we ostracize you. This is the way in which the story is told. And this is incredibly insidious because it's a lie, but it's also a lie which allows these uh, incredibly aggressive totalitarians to um, to keep on the mask of uh, of kindness unlike the social credit system which is barefaced you're being oppressed you're being monitored comrade and one last uh, question actually before before we move on since we talked about this episode because i think it relates to um, to something else which you asked me about you, you asked me about macron and i think we should go into detail on that because you know of course if you're a friend of liberty macron is not your friend okay so let's uh, let's not be too too enthusiastic about uh, yes. about our good friend manuel but um I think his criticism is uh, very pertinent and and very apt about uh, the United States exporting this uh, toxic culture abroad. And I think France, in particular, in Europe, and I don't know why, this might have historic reasons. You know, the French are formerly uh, ridiculed, um, unrightfully so, uh, historically, for, you know, being a weak nation or whatever. In fact, if you look back at the entire story of European history, they might very well be the strongest nation. Um, and of course, they're very proud of their cultural heritage. So I think that might be why in France in particular, you are seeing a very robust response to woke culture, which is not to say that French culture is somehow right wing or very conservative. They're not. They're lefties, uh, but they are very consequent about uh, about being a classical lefty and they don't take kindly to this entire nonsense. Uh, but would be my general statement, not about you know individual French people, but about the the French cultural environment. Uh, and the reason why I bring this up is that one of the things which uh, these people dug up from my social media was uh, a piece where I cited um, an article by The Guardian. So you know, The Guardian is. Uh, Probably everybody in Europe is familiar with this. The Guardian is basically a so socialist propaganda toilet paper, uh, though I think they might not print it anymore, uh, and uh, which you know kind of defeats the core purpose of the Guardian. But uh, they, they're constantly touting this cult of science. This you know, oh, listen to the science. A hundred and five percent of climate scientists agree, and you know, absolute nonsense like that. Um, and uh, they're they're really purporting that they're the representatives of the elite of thought and reason, okay? so But they had this one article where they basically smeared the French Academy for opposing gendered language. And they had, like, really vile, you know, personal uh, insinuation attacks, like, oh, the board of the French Academy or whatever, which is predominantly white and male, and then, come on. Uh, but uh, they had that, and the... Um, the subtext was like these uh, these evil uh, white male, probably also straight. You know, who knows? Uh, academics are um, are opposing gendered language and you know oppressing people of gender or whatever. 
And I quoted this on Twitter and I was like, hey, listen, guys, you know, if you ever thought that the pro-scientism press was on your side, think twice. These guys will throw you under the bus at the first sign of ideological disagreement, even if or perhaps even more so if you're a scientist, right? And they wrote like, you know, the leftist meme format where they write like a wall of text to explain their vacuous thought. So they had the, I got the presentation slides in case you're wondering. So they had like a picture of uh, of my tweet and then a long text explaining how horrible the French Academy is or whatever. And, um, you know, as I was getting beaten over the head with that, I was like, you know, actually what's happening to me is a direct example of what I was complaining about. You have these people who can't shut up about listen to science, but as soon as a scientist disagrees or an academic in that case, um, it's, uh, you know, oh, it's the, the N-word. It's the N-word that's coming back, guys, you know? And one last question is, what do you think that needs to be done to stop this woke culture hmm i don't know if uh, if i knew i'd probably be doing it uh, because as i said thus far before i moved here you know the the knife had not yet cut me to the bone so i was realizing that there are problems you know there's uh, ideologies which are prevalent in academia and which, you know, is not necessarily a surprise, right? Because it could be that academia being chiefly populated by people who don't have proper jobs in the private sector will have an intrinsic anti-freedom bend. So I think that's unavoidable. But, uh, you know, some of these people are actually propagating these ideologies in a quite aggressive manner. Uh, but it never really hit me. So my my modus operandi was like, you know, do your work, do your stuff, uh, ignore the noise, just concentrate and do the best you can but uh, after i came here i noticed at some point you can't anymore because these people will stop at nothing to make your work and your career advancement impossible so i don't know what we can do what i would say is that u.s academia is hopeless so if you are in science or you think of going in science you can consider the u.s for undergrad uh, but be careful uh but uh, you know don't stay there. Like you won't make it far in an environment like this. And even the occasional dissident professor, which you might know from YouTube or whatever, like Jordan Peterson, you know, uh, these are people who got extremely lucky and who probably also played their cards right and uh, are agreeing to abide by certain orthodoxies because probably if uh, if Jordan Peterson would actually speak his mind completely, he'd get into a lot more trouble than it, he already did. So, you know, don't think you can emulate that, okay? Don't think you can ever be uh, perfectly honest and, you know, dissect things intellectually in a U.S. academic environment. So uh, I think one thing which we can do is... Um, Go to Europe, uh, go to a place which is still not that insane and make sure it doesn't become more insane. That would be my advice. Uh, I think U.S. academia is a lost cause by this point. And I'm sad to say because they used to have great universities. As I said, because they're attracting talented people to some extent, they still do. But I think they're mainly running on fumes. Um, yeah, I don't think anything else. I mean, of course, if you're an academic and you you see these problems and they've uh, either already uh, impacted you to your detriment or you you see the sword dangling above your head and you, th- and you think they might in the future, you know, get in touch with me. I think the, the least we could do is at least have uh, friends who would help us um, when we get in trouble. I mean, having a support network because 
all of these walks, they all have their support networks. You know, they want to complain to someone that they couldn't have their the, the, a bathroom for their gender or, you know, someone kicked them out of their preferred bathroom. They'll find lawyers to take their case pro bono and whatever. Well, not maybe not truly pro bono, but like just taking a part of, of whatever settlement is being paid. Uh, so they have a support network. Where's our support network? So connect, make friends, particularly if you're in academia and you actually believe in uh, freedom of inquiry. And yeah, of course, get get in touch with me. Uh, that that would be a good place to start, and maybe we can get the ball rolling on this. That was very nice for you. Uh, and we are reaching the end of this episode. And thank you, Christian, for for accepting and setting all this. Uh, it was very nice. I think it, you, you have a lot to add uh, with what you just said in this episode. I think a lot of people that want to know more about uh, woke leftism in the universities will find a lot of answers in this podcast. Thank you for, uh, for having me over. And again, I think this is important more than just to to the ones among us who happen to be in an academic environment, but also to the world at large, because these are the people who lie at, at the core of the culture, right? So these are the people who are being paid to think. So if the government takes money from you by force and then gives it to people who are paid to think, but who all have a very biased fashion of thinking and, you know, propagate a certain set of ideas, which is convenient to the government, then you're basically paying for the foundation of your future oppression. So even if you're not an academic, you know, take note, uh, don't be anti-academia. So, you know, don't lash out. There's a lot of people who could be thinking and finding out the, the great uh, basic research points, which will enable the next technological re revolution, like what we're doing is valuable or could be valuable, but a lot of it is simply poison and it needs to be said. And uh, ideally, at some point, we could stop this, uh, this waste and this incremental corruption of the intellectual world. Thank you, Christian. Thank you, Lucas. And uh, see you next time. Ciao. So, we have reached the end of this episode. If you like this content, share it with your friends and please subscribe to our channels. You can also support us with some donation at our website, libertarianeurope.com. There you can also find a lot of interesting content, not only in English, but also in other languages. Thank you for listening to this podcast. See you again soon. Stay brave, and most importantly, stay free.